Welcome everyone to season three of the Roycast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined as always by my co-hosts Kate. Hello. And Gabby. Hey guys. And joining us this week for the first episode of season three is critic and author Adam Naiman. Hey Adam. Hey guys. Well, let's get right into it. Um, I, we, we know what we're here to talk about. I'm going to be up front and say that, um, you know, HBO teased us with this for a long time, and I think there was basically no chance the expectations were going to be met. Um, I hated to see what was done with some of our favorite characters here, but that's my take. Adam, can you tell us what you thought of The Many Saints of Newark, a soprano story? But The Many Saints of Newark, well, you know, the... the... The, 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 the word disaster is thrown around too lately these days. No, I mean, Many Saints of Newark is a thing that you should really... You feel like you're going to get very upset and very head up about it, but it, now it's just kind of disappeared, right? You know, this, this, it has the cultural, a cultural half-life of, of, of nothing. Um, so when you measure it against the, the, you know, the very great and, and important and even, even of late, you know, very... Uh, very widely analyzed and discussed show because of course the release of the movie meant that we could sort of wind up the old Sopranos discourse machine you know when you when you compare it to its source material it feels infinitesimal and small and unimportant and I think the best thing you can say about it is it's not going to mar the Sopranos because it isn't really the same thing yeah disaster stagmire these are words that have been been used to describe it they are but it also but I mean I don't know what you guys thought but it also it doesn't matter, right? Like, what's at stake? What's at stake with something like this? Is like, you know, is this gonna, does this wreck the design of the show? And it's like, no, it exists outside the design of the show. It's very obviously a kind of like trying to have an idea kind of project as opposed to something that came effortlessly to somebody. Like, even when they call it a soprano story, as cynical as that is, I'm kind of okay with it because it exists outside of the. The show it doesn't hurt anything it, it doesn't hurt anything it doesn't wreck anything it just kind of sucks yeah in contrast to like a show like deadwood the movie it kind of was supposed to at least finish out the story um so it had a little more at stake uh the deadwood movie than even this because like you said it's it's the show's over it's done it's been you know a decade it's just kind of hard to believe it was made by anybody who was involved with the original series. There's just like kind of none of even like the visual flair that you would have seen on the show. Um, just uh, it's so I think or somebody online said it looked kind of like a fan movie. I would have to agree with that. Or like con- or conversely, too much, too much attempted visual flair because you know The Sopranos is a TV show. It's you know shot to a bit like Succession. Talking about aesthetics is complicated with a long running. TV show because you want it to be stylish but it also kind of needs to be functional like if it's possible for something to be completely shapeless and slovenly but also like over directed the the movie totally fits that bill where like from scene to scene or passage to passage there's no shape to it at all but then individual scenes I'm like oh fuck off with that shot or that setup or that camera (laughs) movement it's very kind of flexy and, and ostentatious but I think the app. But I mean, I think the I think the worst thing about it is what's bad about a lot of backstory media, you know, or, or backstory intellectual property renovation, which is like these these backstories don't improve anything about char- about well about about characters and relationships right. and psychology that are already uh, really good in the finished 
product. And if anything, they just kind of open you up to these questions of like, that's it. You know, they, they, they take the ambiguity and the mystery and the myth out of it. I mean, Brendan and I had messaged about this a bit while we were watching it. It doesn't enlarge certain of the characters or certain of their heritages. It, it just narrows it and, and disambiguates it. And it's really boring, you know, just like death, deathly boring, I think, more than anything else. Well, I thought it was appropriate, at least uh, for the sake of a bit, to bring in The Sopranos at the start of this, because we have talked about The Sopranos before on this show, um, even as far back as the first episode of this podcast, as one of the sort of progenitors, I think, of Succession, which I think shares some of the same kind of interests, um, but um, comes by them honestly and not in a way that is trying to, you know, directly uh, or indirectly pay homage to an earlier show. Um, but we are here, of course, to talk about the season three premiere of our favorite TV show, HBO Succession. Uh, the episode is titled Secession, and uh, we pick up right where we left off with, as Chris Moltisanti would say, the heir apparent, um, Kendall Roy, having delivered this bombshell press conference. Um, so I'm going to dive in and just do a quick few sentence summary of what happened in this episode, and then um, we'll get into some of what most interested us about it. So in the immediate aftermath of this press conference that we saw in the season two finale, Logan and Ken basically begin picking their teams. Ken quickly ejects Carolina. He picks up his assistant Jess and with Greg holes up in his ex-wife Raba's condo. He hires PR firm Barry Schneider and he pursues a high profile attorney, Lisa Arthur. Logan, after a worrying call with a White House aide, sets Shiv to pursue Lisa Arthur as well and retreats with Tom, Frank, Carl, and Hugo to a hotel in Sarajevo. He intends to pick an interim CEO and implies that Shiv can secure the position for herself if she wins Lisa over. When Shiv blows it, he makes the call to name Jerry the interim CEO. Shiv, receiving this news in New York, reroutes her driver to an unknown destination. And as Logan learns that Ken has secured Lisa Arthur's services, he opts to hire fearsome attorney Leo Upton and then departs the hotel for parts unknown. So this is uh, a really wow. interesting uh, move for the show. <laughs> well done, Sorry. Brendan. Well done, Brendan. Yeah. <laughs> That's the yeah. That's Good the work. bit that I that I typed out there. I mean, again, there's there's a lot more specifics that we're gonna that we're gonna dive into here. But this is an odd sort of uh, transitional ep for the show. There's a feeling of transition that I felt sort of like predominating uh, this whole thing. We're spending a lot of time in vehicles. We're spending a lot of time on tarmacs and planes, waiting rooms, hotel rooms, basically non spaces. And I was thinking a lot about just the uh, that sense of the show moving into a different era uh one of which is you know the era in which it is the most discussed show on television i think bar none uh but also this new normal in which we're doing kind of covid style shooting adam you had some thoughts about that too right the way that uh the sort of exterior circumstances are affecting some of the sort of storytelling and filmmaking choices here yeah i mean you could argue that the appeal of the first two seasons was that whatever's happening on the ground literally and figuratively these characters exist above it right and they can always have a workaround i mean there was that first season episode where ken's in the cab or the, the car trying to get to the meeting and he's subject to kind of actual you know interpersonal gridlock but for the most part they can kind of just you know charter planes and they do that here again but the show is also trying in a weird way to do not an end run around covid or float 
above COVID, but because it picks up right in the aftermath, it kind of just, you figure out within two or three seconds, okay, so it's not addressing this at all yet, you know, may not, may not address this at all, period. But you are struck by the lack of, uh, <laughs> the lack of anything resembling urban reality, really, or crowd scenes or anything like that. So yeah, you're in, you're in airplane cabins, and you're in hotels, and you're in spaces where, I mean, just functionally and practically speaking they can shoot at the, given when the show was shot um and that really does play into the idea that this is a kind of rarefied little cabal of of, of people who kind of occupy their own space and float above everything else but it also and i don't want to take too big a swing at this here we might come to some of this a bit more organically as the discussion goes on but something i want to seed in there is that by making this decision to pick up immediately after the end of the last season finale, which makes great sense dramatically, and to, to plunge ahead with that story, it is untethering itself from contemporary social reality in a way that it had never had it never had to take that risk before. And I think it has a potentially damaging effect on what the show is actually about. I don't mean that skipping over COVID means like the characters can't be bitches to each other. I mean, that's fine. But in terms of, you know, kind of what the show's about and, and dealing with contemporary American reality, it just felt, it felt unmoored to me for the first time. I don't know if any of you had that same response. Well, I mean, the sense of being unmoored, I think, is is interesting. I mean, yeah, you do have these characters who, yeah, are floating around uh, sort of in planes, and then, you know, Ken doing a version of sort of Robert Pattinson in Cosmopolis on this sort of endless uh, town car tour of New York, um, trying to figure out a place where he can, you know, make Zoom calls and meet with PR reps. Um, but, I mean, everything uh, in this episode, uh, yeah, did seem a bit uh, arbitrary, seemed a bit you know, closed off from the emotional stakes of the previous season, um, you know, and I think, and, and Gabby, you found this really interesting article um, uh, in Movie Maker, I think, uh, where Mark Mylod, who directed this episode and has directed so many episodes of Succession, um, talking about how things did actually real, really practically feel different on the set when they were shooting this, right? Yeah, I mean, this was kind of edifying to read because, you know, I, I largely agree with the takes here, um, I think the first scenes with Logan in Croatia were um, feeling off to me like instantly. And I don't know what I, what I thought the problem was. I couldn't really identify it. Maybe the story should have picked up later or been condensed, but there was just like a rhythm that was not there. Um, you know, one of the best things about Succession is its subtlety and trusting the audience. And Jesse is, you know, very steadfast in that approach. Um, and I do feel like the mark was maybe missed here and that it felt like very heavy on explanation and light on some of the thematics. However, I, I still enjoyed the episode and I'm giving everyone involved a lot of grace because, um, yeah, it's clear that filming during the pandemic had an impact. So um, I read this article um, from Movie Maker that... Um, interviewed Mike, Mark Mylod after the premiere, and he, he did indeed confirm that he felt, um, quote, utter paranoia going into this season due in large part to the restraints that COVID presented. So he says, the intimate works in conjunction with the epic, um, and so we take away that scope 
and that many bodies in the frame. I was really scared that the show would lose something, that the season would lose something because of how hard it was to shoot bigger scenes and bigger scope scenes in that immediate post-COVID world. Um, yeah, and I kind of thought the same thing, like Brendan, when you mentioned the uh, like the overhead car, town car shots in New York. When I was watching those, I thought like maybe, okay, they just, they don't want to risk having anyone in a mask in the shots. I know they were like very emphatic about COVID not entering the mm. discussion and at that point of filming i think it was march of this year like 95 percent of people in manhattan were wearing masks outside so that's something that crossed my mind um yeah things like things like crowd shots are certainly tough and i think um yeah i think what i read my lot is talking about there is just you know i i, I don't want to speculate too much because I mean, we, we know some about how the show was filmed and we have a pretty good idea but i think that specifically the thing that he was speaking to what we know about the way this uh, show is directed is that it's it is a really close collaboration between uh, yes. you know the writers That's and the, the actors yeah. and the directors and the camera operators in close concert and they do give themselves this freedom this uh, this approach of structured improvisation that goes all the way back to Adam McKay and the pilot where you've got the script but they're giving themselves rooms to develop things on the fly to find moments and to find the scene and let it evolve and at its best you know, we talked about this in our episode on uh, season two, episode three, hunting. It really creates this sense that you are in the room with these uh, powerful people who are generating the reality, the spontaneously uh, right. generated reality that the rest of us occupy. And that has a really powerful thematic and dynamic effect. And, you know, for Mylod to say that he was having trouble finding that collaboration, I felt, okay, yes, that is, I think, some of that, that intangible a sense of you know the magic of the show and some of the feelings of spontaneity that I've seen in the past and I can be more specific later because I have some examples in mind uh, did feel off to me here yeah I mean this group of of people have you know repeatedly referred to themselves as a theater company a small village um, you know and they are very open about how sort of the on-screen alchemy and flow is really enhanced by their chemistry with one another off screen um, and I think some of that anxiety was palpable. And um, another, you know, thing that hampered, um, you know, that ability for them to to sort of flow was um, masks. And so Mylod said, suddenly we were all behind face masks and face shields in a socially distanced environment. And so everything, every communication just felt so transactional just because of the lack of physical physical proximity that lack of physical intimacy. So I found shooting the first episode really hard because we were all so concerned with hitting the ground running, with hitting the same mark, trying to match that same intensity that episode 10 of the previous season had ended with. Um, so yeah, I know Brendan agreed with me that, that we definitely took this for granted when it came to succession, um, the, the idea of the interfering pandemic. Um, you know, I know for me it's because TV production is not really what I've come to think of when you know, we're talking about essential workers or people returning to in-person work, but, you know, it clearly affected them um, as it did all of us. Um, they're human too. And even just existentially, it was a hard year. I mean, it must have been tough for them to be away from family and friends at that time. You know, and there's this overarching sense of unease. Yeah, that I think we can all sympathize with, so. Jeremy Strong bounced back immediately. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I, mean, I, well, I just like to point out. It the, needs I, to be I, hard I, for him, Kate. It needs to be I hard. I feel like, oh, well, that's fair. Good, good call. But I agree with the wonkiness. But by the end and when they're all together, and this speaks to my quote that you um, 
that you referenced, Gabby. Like, once they were all together, the vibe, the chemistry was there for me. Um, in the beginning, when they're separate, uh, you know, this family's, like, incredibly codependent. And they don't know, you know, they're not comfortable flying solo and on their own. Like, they need yeah. each other or Ken's manic energy for momentum. Um, right. And so the momentum just, like, wasn't there. And it, for me, what was disappointing about that was just that we're coming off this high, right? And we feel it with Kendall. Like, we're coming off this high, one of the most intense dramatic scenes in television I can recall of the press conference. And then it just kind of didn't go anywhere with that for me for the first 30 minutes, 20 minutes maybe, um, minus some some stuff from Ken. But, but I do think also it, it could speak to, like, the familial need for one another to kind of have momentum in their own lives right like that's yes yeah i mean and we're also yeah i think you know a lot of what we're describing i think these practical realities of production that yes we see some evidence mm-hmm. uh is is affecting you know just workflows you know, like these are practical logistical issues that i have confidence these people are gonna you know they're gonna work through absolutely and, um you know it's it's uh, if if there was a if there's a sense there that it was you know the, the first day back on set was a bit rough you know I'm sure they they're making adjustments so I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm less concerned about that I, I, I agree I'm less concerned I mean when you say you're not concerned I mean, one of the reasons we're not concerned is because the show has good bones right you know we, we wouldn't be talking yes. about it if it didn't so you know individual scenes or individual arcs aside we know that these are good actors we know that these are durable characters they have a pretty good batting average bringing new people in and sometimes it takes a while for them to integrate but there are very few kind of uh, recurring or guest characters who haven't yielded something rewarding so like the confidence in the creative team i think is 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 very strong and very justified but then the things that are beyond their control or rather the things that you have to see how they now exert control creatively and artistically. And it's not about trying to criticize the show or hold it to a high standard. It's just the the unmoored thing that I felt also had to do with that call that Brendan alluded to. And they called it DOJ. And, you know, Logan's going to shoot the breeze with the unseen president who mm-hmm. I think has been established in the first two seasons as being, yeah. you know. President Raisin. Right. President Raisin. President Raisin, you know, right wing, conservative. but Right. But as much as the show tries to have stand-ins for contemporary political reality, like, uh, you know, Boghossian had a kind of Bernie-ish quality, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they they reference these other things. Between COVID and the last election and the, the Capitol insurrection, I agree that there is a much worse version of Succession that is trying to have its finger on the pulse of all those things, like a, sh- a crappy Aaron Sorkin version of Succession, right? Mm-hmm. Where every real, a billions to a degree. Where, yeah, where, where every re- where every real world event is, you know, duly referenced and and thematized and all that. But it did feel like this, like all like all of a sudden the Roy family power struggle and whatever else everything has now become narrow and self-contained to the well-established universe of succession that we enjoy entering into every week because it's our tv show and uh, there is a little less of the power the show had in spurts in its first two seasons where what seemed to be at stake amidst all this bitchery was actually pretty germane to our reality 
And that's not a holding it against the show. It's just how is the show going to deal with that and so far they've dealt with it by not dealing with it at all but it is just one episode yeah and i mean i think that some of what you're talking about there about the sense of the show you know have having some resonance maybe in in the whatever political or material reality that we live in i think a lot of that you know does have to do with what i was referencing um with the way that this show works and the way it gives itself space to create uh scenes and dynamics in ways that feel spontaneous uh, you know, within the stories themselves, um, you know, that scene in hunting, you know, is not about Trump or anything, right? It's more, it's really more so about Stalin, uh, if it if it is anything else, but it's, but it's but it but it is mainly about these dynamics that exist between the characters, and if that's and if that episode and that scene has space for you to project, you know, some of the realities that we live in onto it, you know, that's down to uh, the space that the direction and the actors create. Um, for your own imagination to do that work. And the narrowness um, of the sort of like team whoever, you know, jockeying and pleading that happened in the very like sort of pressurized version of the CEO search that we got in this episode, I just didn't feel any of that imaginative space that this show is good at creating. Um, so I, 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 th I think that's a, a, I think we've, I've largely covered kind of how we feel about uh, generally about this episode. So we're, don't worry. I want to you know reassure our listeners we're going to get to the stuff that we really liked about this episode because there is uh, stuff there. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to skip over uh, these uh, these really good points that um, that Adam le uh, left in our outline about the um, you know the sense of the characters sort of being exiled in a sense. You know, being in these. They're in these non-spaces, but they're also in, you know, like the Balkans. Uh, Frank has that great line about how he's excited to see more of the Balkans. And this, uh, you know, this, this, yeah, that sense of exile. The implied trip through Logan's, because, you know, they're talking like, well, when has it ever been this bad, right? Frank, and, and, and you're imagining the 20 or 30 years of, you know, previously on succession. Like what, what world, <laughs> what, what world events as a media manipulator you know what kind of yellow journalism was was logan practicing you know in, in his own personal version of citizen kane you know like they mentioned tiananmen square at one point and you're like god how was he involved with that you know or the coverage of it i mean that stuff is yes, world yes. building and it's funny as hell it's so funny it's done it so well argentina sally ann who I'm, i know gabby's gonna get into or mention <laughs> Yeah, but, I, but they've they've seen it all with this guy. Can you imagine working for him? <laughs> what no, you lived through? Some it's of us have. Insane to imagine. You have Brendan. Well, you know, I just in <laughs> in some way in some way or another, all of us are working for the Logan Roy's of the world, right? Um, but oh I did want to give I did want to give Gabby space to yeah talk about uh, that Sally Ann mentioned because it does tie in with a conversation you know we were having does, about yeah. yeah these uh, these references to personal histories on the show. Right, and and it's interesting because you guys were talking about Succession as a contemporary force, and it definitely does have quite a bit to say about um you know the contours of contemporary life and and politics and whatnot but um i think what's so interesting about succession is its handling of history so you know this this stuff about historical transgressions um is so great um it's you know kind of what the show does best um and generational trauma it's impressive <laughs> because um 
you know, as we've discussed, the storytelling in Succession is strictly linear, um, but it's still a show that very much does ask of its audience to meditate on the past. And so, you know, a lesser show would need to use flashbacks to convey, um, like, some of the heavier familial and historical themes of the show. Um, But Armstrong and his team and the actors know the characters so well that these little, uh, you know, tidbits of history do often feel like the spiritual center of the show even though stylistically you know we're just handed what's happening right in front of us in a particular moment um you know and sally ann yeah so she she was mentioned twice in season two um we still don't really know anything about her it's merely been you know alluded to that logan had some sort of affair with a woman named sally ann and you know it's so fun to think about logan's past um, you know, I also thought it was interesting that Frank mentioned early on in the episode um, that Logan was talking about his mom um, in the aftermath of Ken's presser. And, you know, so I, I really enjoy these moments. Um, for me, they felt a little like less integrated um, than they usually are. Uh, and, you know, that was another problem I thought with this episode. But, um, Anyway, you know, I, I understand that it was, you know, a table setting episodes and, you know, there have been table setting episodes before, but, you know, typically the show executes this component really well. Um, you know, it is kind of just the heart and soul of the show, these errant personal details that we get that, you know, always that never feel unrealistic or like, you know, that wouldn't have happened, um, you know, but are always, you know, kind of like tickle us right in that spot where like we know these characters and that makes so so much sense like of course Logan was involved in some shady shit in Latin America um you know so it's it's so great when we get these moments I want to know what happened in Argentina I hope we get more on that uh, probably something really depressingly I think uh, of banal and with plenty yeah, of and historical we, we might not ever get anything more about any of these things you know just this world building like Adam said but it in and of itself I mean it just it makes the show so fun and it, it ties yeah. in those broader thematic elements um, that you know because the show is not really about um, you know rich people doing business I mean it is but as we know and as you know has been discussed ad nauseum and and is you know jesse's take as well like it's not really what the show is about yeah i mean i think some of that stuff you're mentioning like this the some of the missing sense of interpersonal history between these characters is you know a lot of it is down to you know the people who have known each other the longest like the siblings being split up um for so much of the episode and this episode is very much like all business right um people have teams to get together everybody's like everybody's in that heist mode right let's let's put a team together um but you know Let's. Action I want to move now. Action, <laughs> action yeah. stations. Well, yes. <laughs> speaking of action stations, and speaking of somebody who came out of the gate, you know, strong. Uh, Jer- this. I. I was. It wasn't. It didn't occur to me until we were discussing this episode after I'd rewatched it a couple times that this is the first uh, performance we've seen Jeremy Strong give as Kendall Roy since he won the Emmy for it. Um, it. It's been so long now, but this. You know, if you were tuning in for the first time to see Emmy Award winner uh, Jeremy Strong, this would be your. <laughs> first introduction to him and that, and that is interesting to me because we've talked in the past you know one of the things that 
I love so much about this performance and this character is that it's a very unconventional sort of leading man performance. It's not the kind of performance that you mm-hmm. think of as something that wins awards necessarily. We know that Jeremy Strong's very intense. He's a method guy, uh, but the performance is mostly very inward. He's always, you know, he's, his body posture is very pinched. He stammers a lot. He doesn't have a lot of scenes where he's like shouting and being really emotional or, you know, uh, I guess he does have scenes where he cries, but you know, not, it's not loud stagey crying. Right. Um, but this is, uh, you know, this is as sort of extroverted as we've ever seen him. And this is, I, you know, I think the most fun we've ever seen Ken really having uh, in an episode. And uh, yeah, I just had a ton of fun watching him uh, in this hour. Oh, oh, big time. Yeah, that's a lot of this. I was just in my notes saying this is so much fun and I love it. Like this can't be good for Kendall, but this is great for us. Um, (laughs) we got to see a lot of new Kendall faces too, which is very exciting. Um, so yeah, like taking, are we going in this direction to Kendall? Yes. uh, Yeah. We're, we're, we're in, we're in Kendall mode. We're in our Kendall era. We're in Kendall mode, which is uh, good for me. That's my speed. Yeah. I was taking Kendall's emotional temperature this episode, um, doing some emotional monitoring instead of medium monitoring. And our man is on a high, right? Like, he spent his entire life as a fail son, not living up to dad's expectation or getting much love from either of his parents, whatever, whatever. And all of last season, which is, you know, many months, just like being completely repressed and living in his dad's shadow, doing things because dad said so. And after going inward and repression, he's ready to let it all out after this betrayal or besting, uh, whichever you see it as, um, at the press conference or both. Obviously, the response makes sense to us. The feeling of liberation set off in Kendall. Uh, He seems to have triggered, like, some sort of mania. And the plus side here is that we get to watch uh, Ken vibe through this entire episode. Just totally vibing, totally spontaneous, and without any depth of thought, um, he is feeling himself. So we start off the app with moments of decompression from the press conference with Make Sense. We get a little bit of meditative Ken. We get some Ken, uh, you know, in his mother's womb, a.k.a. the tub, uh, briefly. And then he's, like, on fucking full force from 5 to 100, hopping in cars, asking people to take his reputational clout temperature online. He's charming people. And what's bizarre, too, is, like, the charm... I'm actually finding him charismatic. He's not just faux charming. I don't know. Did you guys think he was at all charismatic? I I, I thought he was a, a a grotesque clown, you know. <laughs> and and I I loved him. And I and I thought that a lot of people have isolated and freeze framed as the new great Jeremy Strong Emmy face, the kind of Pagliacci face when he talks mm-hmm. about having not really killed anybody. I mean, one thing I want to say about that and the character, maybe just as something for you guys to bounce off of, and I'll apologize to Brendan because he's heard me kind of try and try and feel my way through this one before, but um, there's a really interesting paralleling that's going on in season one and two between the single car accident that claims one life and then the cruise ship where, like, supposedly lots of people drowned, right? And that's the way the show is structurally trying to do this this magnification where at the end of season one there's like one person's worth of blood on uh, Kendall's hands personally and it's quite horrifying you know it's hard for us to think back to that 
the idea that succession can actually be horrifying because at this point it's more just like gleefully nihilistic or like gleefully disastrous right, right. like we we rub our hands together and be like you know what fucking fresh hell is going to come how people are treating each other but that thing at the end of season one, which I think is the dramatic high point of the show, that's the sort of thing that you feel in your own mind like you are repressing. That horrible feeling sometimes you have in the middle of the night where you're like, did I do something terrible? Like, did I dream that or did that happen? It's a horrible thing. And I thought that in, in season two, they didn't lose track of it in plot terms. I mean, that's what Logan had hanging over Ken the whole time. Right. But they, they tried to magnify it into these transgressions on the cruise line, which actually aren't Kendall's fault. They're, they're, they're someone else's. But I thought that even as the show is trying to deepen the implications of how terrible this family is and how much violence has been done, even if it's a violence of negligence or just a violence of, 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 of looking in the wrong direction as opposed to literally killing people, I mean, we get the impression there's supposed to be deaths on these cruises, right? All those deaths, they refer to them sarcastically as non-people or non-real people. But even within no the real no real but, person, yeah. but even in the show's dramatic matrix, in a bad way, it feels like no real people, because we don't see it. But we really did see it that first time. So when I think about Succession, I'm as I'm as fond of talking about like, you know, Tom drinking his own cum at a bachelor party and. And, and, and how hot Shiv is and all the funny Greg lines. I mean, it's a great show in that way. But the dramatic core of it is that Ken killed somebody. He did. Uh, and that's hanging on him. And that's why he goes into the meth spiral in season two. And that's the same mania that he's kind of distilling and, and, and cruising on here at the beginning of season three. And I'm trying as a viewer to hold on to that the same way I think Strong is holding on to it in the performance. The fact that they put that line there as early as they did, where it's like, it's not like I've killed someone and he gives that look. It's like, this show's smart enough to, 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 to have not buried or submerged that detail. I was like, he's actually joking about his darkest secret, the secret he's been running from. Well, right? this is, like, well, he feels that he's liberated himself from it, right? Like this is his emotional response. That's what I was gonna he, ask, yeah. Yeah. Do you guys think that that he thinks of the presser as like some twisted form of penance for what it's, he did, or at yeah. least this is the closest thing he can he can get to penance? Well, well these are the terms that his, uh, you know, what he was supposed to do at the end of season two, the when he was really going to do it, and it seemed for a while like he was really going to do it. He was really going to take the fall for his dad. He explicitly put it in those terms of, "I owe this. This is me paying the debt that I owe." Uh, for killing this boy, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and and it's and it's you know it's abstracted onto this other thing in this grotesque arrangement I'm making with my dad, um, but I actually do owe this. I actually do owe a life, um, and so he was going to give himself up to do that, and so he makes this decision, and we we still don't get a lot in this episode about what went into that decision. You know, we certainly don't get any ind indication that he conspired with Logan. That's off the table. We don't get any indication that he was conspiring with Greg, um, or what he's really asked of Greg. Um, so that is sort of left for us to imagine as to what his thought process is, but it really seems like he feels that, okay, my father is such a greater villain than me and has so much more blood on his hands. I offer him in my stead and my right. debt is paid. I am now free of this great burden. And that is what that, that mania comes from, is he has a new lease on life because he really feels, even in some sublimated way that he may not be able to voice, um, that he has paid the debt he owes you know, to God, to the universe. 
Right. I mean, that's why, like, he gives zero explanation, as you mentioned, except for he tells uh, Frank and Robin, the kids, that, of course, in grandiose terms, which is typical media, I did this for you. Um, I did this for us. He sees it as a revolution, you know. Well, he, he sees and, it as. Oh, sorry, go on. No, yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, and he has this self. This, I mean, this is one of the one of the funniest lines in the episode. It's near the end. It's buried after maybe the point has been made, but it still comes out explicitly when he sort of says to Greg when they're in uh, his ex-wife's apartment. He goes, "Look at all these amazing women we've got around us," <laughs> and yeah. you know, referring to the the image consultant he won't listen to, the lawyer right. he talks over, the ex-wife he's kind of you know, you know, swooped back into her apartment and like interrogated her about male razors in her bathroom. I mean, the show is very good at showing people be clueless and hypocritical, but this the larger idea that Ken is rebranding himself as woke, progressive, um, you know, and that that's how he's in some in some subconsciously ingenious way. That's how he's mm-hmm. going to do battle with his family, right? That yeah. that that that's a way to differentiate himself from his father. He's not going to cover up. He's going to speak truth. He's not going to be part of this right wing media apparatus. He's going to, you know, you know, take on, you know, take over social media and sort of try and be like when he when he mentioned wanting the BoJack guys to write his tweets. I was like, did finally someone get a good shot in at BoJack Horseman? They did. Like finally, a, but they like did. a but like a good a good shot at it. Because it's easy to take cheap shots at. It was like, that's a good shot at that show. And at the texture of performative wokeness and a lot of social, socially conscious media. And that's a tightrope Succession is walking. Because it's not like Succession's a conservative show. But they're, right. they're being very, like... They're, they, I thought that they're the, the, these were some pretty, some, pretty clever, some pretty clever moves it was pulling on this front in this episode. Well, I think one of the f- the funniest jokes that this episode tells, you know, you meant you you teased out the way in that's in which that's a very good dunk on Bojack in a way, but I think the you know we were talking a lot about you know. I think there were more mentions of Twitter than uh, in this episode than there ever have been before in a single hour on this show. And in a lot of ways that in a lot of ways that makes sense as the family is dealing with, you know, public opinion and their, you know, dirt is being dragged into the open and they are more and more afraid that they're losing control. And there's some outside entity like public opinion or the quote unquote mob that they're going to have to answer to. But the idea that Ken, who has as we've been talking about this mania, this new lease on life, that he's this billionaire son who's never wanted for anything. And now he finds all of a sudden that he has uh, not only a new lease on life and a freedom from this burden that's been on his soul uh, for the last season, uh, and he finds that all of a sudden he has sort of public opinion on his side, and he has people coming to him and saying, what do you want? And the thing that he wants is to be good at Twitter. That is so fucking funny. <laughs> good tweets. <laughs> yeah, good, 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 good. But but also, you know, on some, it's funny because his as people in some of the recaps and writing about it, they all kind of agree on this point. Like, the bones of his strategy are pretty good, right? Yeah. Like if yeah. he's like if he's if he's gonna go do this, some of the larger choices that he's making to be mobile to be agile to distance himself mm-hmm. from the family yeah. i mean to be woke it, 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 in the face of this for sure yeah to reach out to all these people and well he doesn't actually take their input but he pretends to want right to using all input. these women when this is fundamentally a crisis about you know 
the mistreatment of women and others, but, you know, in large part women. Whereas you see Logan still putting his faith in these elephantine old institutions because it's what he recognizes, right? So, you know, he's putting in a call to the Department of Justice. He's kind of expecting that, you know, greasing wheels and having friends in high places and, and having the brand, you know, having the family brand name there is going to sort of protect him. But as some other people have pointed out, and I'd love to know what you guys think of this, because now we're sort of just talking about the dramatic universe of the show. In a strange way, since season one and his different kind of vulnerability, like that kind of physical mental vulnerability they wrote into the show just in terms of him being infirm right i mean ever Mm -hmm. since that this is clearly the most rattled this character has been logan logan I, i found him quite rattled in this episode even if they're not explicit shows of weakness he's really nervous scrambling reactive indecisive and he's one step behind the whole way Ken says he's scared and he's in Europe, and you know that sums that sums it up. But right. he's, he's, too, yeah. he's too late to Lisa Arthur. He's definitely out of sorts for sure, and you know he's surrounded himself with his C-suite and you know his uh, you know m- most trusted colleagues, his kids. Um, but uh, yeah, he's he, well. He, that's he's the thing scrambling. is that. That's the thing is they're not actually his most trusted colleagues, right? As he tells Frank multiple right. times, Frank, who he keeps at his, You're he keeps Frank at his side You're almost specifically because potatoes. he isn't trusted. <laughs> he keeps Tom by his side, Tom, who he doesn't particularly take seriously, but is suddenly very important to him because he is mm-hmm. the person he's put in charge of this news division um, that he really needs to keep close at his side. So it's not even like he's got people that he trusts the most because, you know, you really get the sense in this episode that Logan probably... You know, when you get down to it, he doesn't trust anybody, right? If Kendall, Logan has never felt more alone. If Ken, if yeah, he's I mean, kept, the, he's kept Kendall I'm, by his side the whole uh, all of season right, two. and even season two, even the way he tells, even the way he tells Kendall, you know, okay, good play, you know, you're playing the game, I get it, but you know, you you, you can you can stop now, and Kendall's like, you know, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, he gets really mad. He calls him a cunt. Um, he's hurt because. This is a, a true violation in a way that, you know, we, we haven't really seen before uh, in terms of Ken going against his father. You know, it's interesting to compare kind of how the two respond. Um, Brenda and I were t- chatting a little yeah. bit about this before the episode and that, like, you know, um, they appear to have totally different strategies here in that, like, you know, um, or not totally different, but... Kendall's reaching out to people, friends, foe, family members, new people, strangers, bringing them in. And while he's like pretending um, he wants their input, he, you know, he's not actually letting them have any input. He's pitching Barry Schneider instead of Barry Schneider pitching them, even though he asked them to pitch, you know, he can't stop talking, which is uh, part of mania. But, um, and then Logan, on the other hand, you know, is asking for input, but is he truly, you know, like when they're, he's trying to debate, do they cooperate or is it war? I mean, I, I don't think he actually is really asking for input. He's asking for input, but is he actually just going through the motions to make them feel included or is he just gonna, I mean, because he, he is, he's all alone. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that moment of anger that we mentioned when uh, he's on the phone with Ken and, you know, Ken says, you know, he tells Jess to say, you know, I don't want to see you end up in jail. That's what really pisses Ken off. And, you know, we started off, you know, talking about the Sopranos. That's a very mob thing, right? Of like, you know, what kind of man, you know, brings, you know, the feds into this, you know, don't bring, you know, don't bring jail time into this. That's not part, that's not part of this. Uh, of this world and you know and he and logan also makes the implication there when he says it was a play and it's and it won't wash you know what he's implying there is that people are ultimately going to see through this sort of virtuous posturing that ken's making and that they're going to interpret it um as just another move in this game he's playing with his dad and and because the show is honor bound to reverse and twist and you know you know dig in on itself over and over again for 12 or 13 episodes assume that that's exactly what's going to happen right i'm not i'm not i'm not like a predictive tv watcher i sort of don't try and be like and this is where it's going to go i mean trying to outthink a tv show is a waste of time especially when it's a good good a good show i mean you can do it with bad shows and with a good one like why try and undermine your own fun but to me the the grand the groundwork that's clearly being laid here just in a general way is not about a personally redemptive arc for Ken where he's going to learn to you know let other people talk and listen to women and and bring down this horrible media empire and get his family back I mean his delusion is what's going to get chipped away at in those directions at least for part of this this season you know it's Mm -hmm. it's 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 setting him up for a very I won't say for a a fall fall. yeah Yeah. or a variety of stumbles that from week to week will be funny to watch well, a come right, down. Right, right. Sure. I mean, and, the, mm-hmm. and and that's the joy in it. I think you're right, Adam, in into pointing out kind of um, it's easy to get carried away with the glee of bad behavior and lose real world stakes. Um, but but you know, the glee for me here is is kind of knowing, and I'm the bit I'm Team Kendall, but um, as are many other people, but um, that we hear on the show this episode, but um. That's my stupid point. My point is, is that, you know, yeah, it's 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 setting up for some fun, you know, and I think it will be fun as much as kind of we can. As much as I was happy for Ken or seeing Ken, quote unquote, happy, it's um, it can't last. It can't last as someone who's dealt with mania and all that's going to happen is, you know, you're going to come down from this. You don't know when, but it will happen. Um, Yeah. And uh, I, I think speaking of, um, you know, the sort of schadenfreude and, you know, sort of dark glee that we get from this show, um, something that I think all the characters on this show seem to really uh, take that dark glee in is uh, watching Shiv in her flop era um, and watching her, you know, take L's over and over again. And uh, she takes some big ones in this episode. <laughs> again, the speak- power rankings. Bottom of the power ranking, Shiv. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of somebody totally isolated, uh, who trusts no one, who has no real friends, you know, I I, def- I definitely think that we're being invited to compare Kendall and Logan in ways that we never have before. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also a very strong parallel um, in uh, Shiv and Logan here, who are both very, very adrift and have nobody to really turn to. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this, you know, because once again in this episode, Shiv is set to do the, as she put it so memorably, the soft skills lady duty shit work of going mm-hmm. to use her sort of uh, personal connections to uh, secure the services of Lisa Arthur, this very savvy, you know, sympathetic 
uh, attorney who is said to have, you know, some feminist credentials, right? Um, and then she gets there. She gets in this room with this lawyer who is, by the way, played by Sanaa Lathan. Um, and the sense that I got was that these people had never been alone in a room together. This is somebody that she had, <laughs> she had maybe, she had maybe, it, yeah. she had maybe seen that or at a party, at a work function, maybe that, maybe this is a vanishingly small possibility. They had been in the same sort of girlfriend group, um, to get drinks or something, but these two people have never had to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation before. And this is somebody that Chev sort of, you know, lamely insists is her friend, uh, when Logan asks if, he, uh, she can secure cure her services um very very pathetic stuff well i thought that one of the other small little it's an episode i think that unlike on a, in in some of its bigger scales you could see the seam showing but then the thing is the show is really good at it remains really good at so i thought there was an interesting reversal of a dynamic where when they're all splitting up right and shiv is supposed to go here and tom is supposed to go there she sort of says goodbye to tom she says love you and he says sort of something like uh-huh thank you right yeah which is yeah. the body language there the body language which is you know, part of just his awkwardness but also you know like if you can, if it's possible to like carry a torch for the person you're married to that was sort of the <laughs> that was the humanizing part of tom last season right that right. on some level he's bought into the fact that this is an arrangement but he's very tired of seeing himself through his wife's very bored you know very kind of instrumentalizing eyes right and I thought that some of her best acting ever was in that. Again, it's written to be important. It's like written in italics, kind of that scene in The Cove where he talks about the unhappy he'd be with mm -hmm. her versus without her. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a real kind of the show is sort of, you know, putting its cards on the table. But her acting is, is, is terrific there. And I thought that that was a thread that got kind of picked up here where, you know, if she doesn't have Tom, like, fretting over her and mooning over her and almost chasing her even though they're married a big source of her power then is gone because she mm -hmm. doesn't have power really over everyone else she has that weird daughter power over her dad but she's not mm -hmm. winning with it you know right. it keeps bringing him right to the edge of going with her and then something else makes him not trust her so while i don't think her conduct in this episode was sympathetic and i think she did kind of fuck up she seems quite disempowered too. Yes. Yes. And well, it, what's so interesting? Oh, sorry, Adam. I no, 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 no. That was that, that was that was that was the end. Just that was the end of my point. Just the extent to which she seems kind of kind of disempowered. And when Sarah Snook's great ability as an actress is to seem unflappable, you know, right? So mm, right. seeing her kind mm -hmm. of flappabled is 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 fun. Yeah, that cool girl diminishes that detachment. You know, kind of goes away. Um, yeah. yeah, I was just going to briefly say, yeah, I mean, all the failures with her dad is generally because she doesn't have a life outside of it. it he's her whole world. The family's her whole world for the most part, maybe, you know, the job um, and Tom to some degree. But um, I mean, and, and Gabby, I know you wanted to go further in depth on kind of. Well, yeah, I, know, I mean, something I feel long been interested in is um Shiv's lack of friendships which has been like mostly implicit in her lonely and sad personal life but as we saw with Lisa Shiv's you know friendship problem also handicaps her 
um, in, in business, which is now just her family, which is, again, the only thing that she really cares about. And um, succession in general, is not, you know, it's not about friendships, but it's nevertheless unusual in a show, um, you know, that relies heavily on personal relationships for its storytelling that we never see Shiv with friends or a reference to her friends. Like even on her wedding day, there was no apparent intimacy with any of her bridesmaids. Um, And of the Roy kids, she's ostensibly the most likely to have friends on paper. I mean, you don't look at beautiful Shiv Roy and think this is a loser with no friends. I mean, she's very charming. She's gone to school. She's traveled the world. She's has or, you know, slash had a people-oriented career in politics for a while. So, you know, it's uh, it seems strange, but as we've discussed and um, as Adam was kind of saying before that, um, you know, feeling disempowered and Kate, you were talking about, you know, the avoidance we've discussed on this show that Shiv has an, uh, an avoidant attachment style. Um, and so, so there's, there's this paralyzing fear of intimacy, um, which often develops among children, strict families that withhold affection and, you know, discourage displays of emotion. Um, and that very clearly falls in line with both Logan and Caroline. Um, we know that they are, you know, were abusive parents and um, undoubtedly emotionally. Um, and, and who knows the extent of that. Um, so, you know, as a response, Shiv denies and stifles her need for love. But, you know, she very much appears to have it together on the surface um, and, and, you know, not needing much. And, you know, she kind of uses Tom as um, her punching bag. And, you know, like Adam was saying now that he's sort of reevaluating that she doesn't know what to do. And, you know, that's part of the reason she keeps him around. Um, so, um, you know, it's you know, she has an impossible time with meaningful long-term relationships of any kind. Like, it cannot be overstated that tricking someone you purportedly love into having an open marriage is deeply maladaptive behavior. I mean, that's really fucked up shit, like, sad shit, you know, like, just dark, you know, like we were talking about earlier, um, you know, some of the, you know, the Kendall stuff is, um, just straight up sad. The contradiction of Tom is that, he has if not a moral compass he has some norm some sense of a normal life and how people are supposed to treat each other that he is put off by these things when they come up but it doesn't drive him away from the family i mean it's funny like he knows what he's buying into and he really kind of wants to buy into it whereas the greg character is a funnier version of an audience surrogate where he's like literally dropped into this right he he's 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 dropped into this he really doesn't know how to how to play he's not polished he's not a performer whatever else i mean in a way as people have pointed out you know tom and Schiff are sort of perfect for each other because in their rational lucid moments they believe in that kind of detachment and opportunism in business and that's why they do get back on the same page in this episode as soon as they're apart physically and they're having to talk and text on the phone. They're kind of back to the dynamic that works, which is very kind of schemy, you know. But it's to the show's credit that they've never turned Tom into a pure audience surrogate where he's like, you know, stop the the wheel. I want to get off. He wants to stay on, you know. And it's, it's, it's why the performance is so fascinatingly hateful, I think. Yeah, I mean... It's interesting you mentioned that, Adam, because I would say for me this episode, and it could just be me, I, I saw for the first time um, maybe a reluctance in, in Tom um, about 
joining this, about him being part of this, about his marriage being part of this. Um, and, and that's new because, like you said, he was all on – he's so bought in uh, to being part of this family, to being a Roy himself. And I think, you know – I had just a little bit of a different takeaway from when they were apart a lot based on his hesitation or straight out, you know, refusal to push Shiv. Um, we'll get there. But but I, I do think he's starting to wonder not only um, maybe does he want some revenge slightly about Shiv, but also he's wondering if maybe her being the CEO would be the best for them. I think maybe he's like finally coming around as we saw like in the finale you know he yeah. is hesitating and he and is he, starting to question he's, these he's things. had moments of this like in um dundee when they were talking about Rhea becoming ceo and him sort of thinking mm -hmm. that that would be better for him but it definitely feels more conscious here I, I kind of got that sense too kate that maybe he's you know he needs to start thinking about himself and he's realizing you know that shiv only thinks about herself and so and right. he, he really does love her um, but now he has to say to himself, like, <laughs> is this worth me going to jail? Is this, you know, worth ruining yeah. my life? Um, and I think, you know, maybe there will be an escalation in terms of grappling with that. Although I do think they are stuck in this anxious avoidant trap where um, it will be very hard for them to un untether themselves from each other. Well, for Tom, there's that moment, um, I think, uh, on the plane where he's talking to uh, Shiv about the strategizing and stuff. And this is another... Uh, part where the emotional the immediate emotional stakes of that season two finale um are very present um because there's that uh, part where shiv is like do you want it and tom has this incredulous reaction of like no i don't want it um where i don't think that uh, his incredulousness there uh, has this underbite that's not quite like of course i don't want it because there was a point where he sort of was angling mm -hmm. for that position himself but he there's this but there's this underbite of anger like weren't you literally just dangling me over the side of a yacht by my ankles you know weren't you about to feed me to the sharks like five minutes mm -hmm. ago um that's kind of yeah. how i felt that and that pro and i think you know if i read that correctly that plays a role in you know his uh, a slight reluctance um to really advocate yeah for his i wife mean do later. you guys i don't think he was playing the reverse banjo to use logan's language i thought immediately perhaps he was when it was just like i like jerry uh but he seemed to double down um and frankly again i think subconsciously or consciously he's realizing it maybe wouldn't be good for their marriage and then partially it's a passive aggressive way for him to get back at, at, at back at her take away something that she would love um so you know i kind of saw it to, that twofold but i know that you know people have different reads of that anyone else think think it was a reverse banjo or <laughs> well i mean oh i i think that it's left open that both are possible i just think that on the ceo yeah. front the show not so much logan but the show made the best possible choice right the the show's Jerry. well yeah for the show at least for the early right. stages of a right, season right, right. this is obviously a good yes. choice because she's as neutral a party as possible like the relationship between her and logan is almost non-existent meaning a if they're going to create one that could be new and interesting right and if it's mm -hmm. not it's not going to really get in the way of 
of, of, of the various psychodramas with his kids. And it means that it keeps the Kieran Culkin, it, keep, it keeps the, 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 the Roman character close enough to power that, you know, he seems to be like simultaneously right. lusting right. for it and afraid of it. So just as like a storytelling choice, I thought her as the path of least resistance and as the only one who, who doesn't have a big glaring reason not to, her getting it is very funny. It gets red meat too. The audience loves Jerry and Roman. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not to go into <laughs> Roman the lusting much, after but... something and also being scared of it is a very good kind of uh, character characterization of his psychosexual issues. And especially that it's an older woman. I mean, hello. Yeah, this is one of these things that you hope that, like, unlike many very good other good shows, and this is a good show. You're like, we like this, but please don't trample it into the ground. Right. You know, right. So we'll we'll have to see because this is clearly in my social media feed to the extent that Succession lurks within it, which you know it does, although less than some other people's. I mean, I'm not really part of a part of abs- Like I, I, whenever whenever people are like something something hive, I'm like no thank you. But uh, <laughs> it, 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 it Adam, come on, you're no. the Paul Thomas Anderson hive. hive Admit no, it. No hives. I get hives. No hives. But <laughs> but. I will say that the, the, the Roman Jerry thing is obviously a very strong feeling within the fan base because it's more perverse and funny than Tom and Shiv is, right? If we're going to do shipping right. on the show. The Roman Jerry thing is funny. I just hope the show doesn't over overdo it. Yeah, well, the, I agree. the really funny thing about it in this episode is that they've they've laid the groundwork there where they can do a bit where uh, Roman implying that he actually wants to have coital uh, sex with a woman is somehow like really perverted and freaky. Um, yeah. Like, like, dude, what's like, dude, where is your head at, man? What's wrong with you? It's fucking Roman looking hot as ever this season. Yeah, a he's longer hair. He's, I like it. He's he's getting off on his uh, sister's professional humiliation. Um, that's <laughs> Do we, because because you guys watch the show that much more carefully and knowledgeably than me, since you do a podcast. Do we? What happened to his unbelievably cute girlfriend from season two? Is she gone? Oh, from the show? Gabby, go! You love tabs. Let's oh, hear yeah, it. No, I I love no, her too. I, I don't about, know. Uh, I genuinely Grace, don't know. Right? No season he said two. Season two, I thought. Oh, I thought you were talking about Grace. Right? Sorry. Was well, she Tabitha, the tall woman, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. No, we don't. I, they just haven't said anything. Um, so she. Know, so could, she. So, so she could come back. She could come back, but I don't think she is. Um, I think we just have to kind of have to run with the assumption that it sort of fizzled out. Um, he wasn't. <laughs> well, there was really a, there was a trans there was a transference of those feelings onto Jerry, right? Basically, it started to yeah, fizzle right. in, in Turnhaven, yeah. where uh, they made an abortive attempt to have actual sex, and that was where the encounter with Jerry got a little bit more personal. So, yeah, right. that's right. right. Just curious, I, I I liked her. No, I I, I liked <laughs> yeah, her too. She was it's, a fun character. It's, it's a loss, yeah. Yeah. Um, Her, his eunuch bestie. Eunuch bestie. I d- okay. Well, uh, we're at a, we're at the hour mark here. Um, I think we've talked through a lot of the meat of this episode. I think we just want to do some quick hits about some of the other minor characters who pop up here and have some good moments. Um, namely, of course, Connor and Willa, who only get a couple of lines here, um, but uh, are still sort of obsessed with uh, the I, I, a seemingly very notorious uh, Spider-Man turn off the dark level failure of uh, the Broadway hit Sands. <laughs> I can't wait to yes 
I can't wait to hear Adam on this. Well, no, I just thought I put it in the put it in the old Google Doc for us to talk about. I thought that if this episode, to some extent, is like they've had two years to relaunch, obviously Succession itself is part of the meta text to this episode. We've talked about some of the ways that it is. So I thought it was really interesting where they talk about. Uh, what, it, what does he say to her? He says, uh, let's instrumentalize your bad reviews into a kind of selling point. He says, let's chase the hipster dipshit demographic. And I the thought, hate watch. The, the, the Irono cycle. Yeah, the Irono cycle, the hate watch, the hipster dipshit demographic. And I thought it was interesting that Succession knows that its popularity and its acclaim mm-hmm. exists well beyond that sphere, right? But I think it still wants to kind of claim ownership of a certain kind of hipster dipshit demographic because otherwise it's just a show that wins emmys and at the end of the day and again you guys might jump on me and never invite me on your show again but (laughs) what's interesting what's interesting is that jesse armstrong and these other talented people i'm going to use the word talented about three or four times now so that i don't end up sounding like a jerk (laughs) with what i'm going to say i mean it's still it's still like these are still people who want and campaign for and win Emmys and that's the quality metric for a show like this. It's not the persuasive one or the needle moving one cuz I think you can argue that it's good in spite of the Emmys it wins, right? It's good in spite of the 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 conventional metrics that it keeps you know, succeeding by, but like, there's another universe where this show doesn't catch on. It isn't a big hit and it's on life support. And the reason there's podcasts about it is because no one's watching it. It's now come out the other side of that. And is like, you know, the quote unquote best show on TV. So I thought that even Mm -hmm. that little bit of discussion they're having about ironic viewership or different kinds of viewership or the weird, cynical, ironic relationship that we have towards a lot of art and cultural products now I, I think they're sort of trying to hold on to something a little oppositional or adversarial or subversive even in the uh, even in the wake of the show's triumph because this is now a show for winners right mm-hmm. these are now mm-hmm. award-winning yes. actors and it's a it's 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 a winner show it, it it's not like a uh, oh, you know, this this show is so good. Why isn't anyone watching it? People are dumb. This is why good things aren't popular. This is a good thing that now happens to be popular. I think this weighs on them a bit. Yes. What, what, what say you all? I mean, it weighs on us. I have mentioned in it. <laughs> yeah, we, we've talked about it extensively for sure. Um, you know, the, the growing um, kind of... <laughs> Our ambivalence, critical acclaim, fandoms, um, you know, the just the the whole um, like youth culture involvement, the memification of the show has been absolutely insane to witness over the last few years. Um, Well, we were. But yeah, they've they've said they're they're asked about it in interviews about the the sort of like um, frenetic fan energy around the show. And, you know, they sort of like tiptoe their way around it and say they don't you know really pay much attention to it they're grateful for it but you know jesse doesn't want to start thinking um in terms of you know the show's really popular he kind of feels like it would be um you know an insult to the audience and part of what's so great about the show is that it really does trust its audience um so you know i i have faith that they kind of understand um why the show got popular and that that maybe you know eating uh, or, or buying too much in, into your own hype is sort of a recipe for, for um 
you know, disaster in a situation like this. But yeah. Um, well, I, I think you that, that it's, it's definitely. Yeah. I think it is a challenge for them, you know, to try and tune out that noise. It has to be challenging. I mean, it's challenging. I mean, it's challenging for us, you know, just watching it. We're mm-hmm. not engaged in making it. All we have to do is watch the show every week and make a Google Doc and do a podcast mm-hmm. about it. And it's very hard to tune out a lot of the chatter. But I mean, you know, I, I was talking with Adam about how, you know, they've really turned on the sort of promo hose for this show to a sort of obscene degree. Um, and yeah. I, I do get some kind of I don't I don't think it says anything about how the show is made, but I do get some kind of perverse satisfaction out of seeing them continuing to market this show basically to people who uh, I don't know listen to Pivot and read the Wall Street Journal, um, and uh, then at, at the same time sort of lamely trying to interact with the meme lords on Twitter and not being able to keep up, and I, that says to me they don't they still don't really understand why people like this show as much as they do. Um, and so that that still makes that still makes me feel like we, you know, at least on this show in our little corner of analysis, um, I think have hooked on to I think something that's special about it. They should hire Barry Schneider um, and her team to do some cool tweets, get Bojack on it, whatever. You know, or 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 or, or hire someone from from Red Scare to act on the show. Well, yeah. So let's okay. Exactly. So let's so, so we'll talk. So we'll talk yes. a little bit now about some of the new characters. So we've been t- so we were introduced to some of this episode. We mentioned Sanaa Lathan as Lisa Arthur. Um, we've been alluding to Barry Schneider, who's played by the actress Jihei. and then we have Dasha Nekrasova, who gets a few lines, and I believe her character's name is Kingo. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and, uh, I'm gonna murder you. I I, I mean I had to I'm look at the pronunciation. I'm, I'm pretty confident that's correct. She plays Kingo, um, and she has some she has some uh, some banter with Greg here, and yeah, I mean we talked a little bit. I think Adam, you mentioned at the top of this episode about you know the high quality guest stars that have come on, and there are a lot more still to come on this season that we'll get into a little bit. Um, but I, I do th- I, you know I would sort of take issue with I think that you said that you know that this show has a good track record with guest stars. I would quibble with that to the extent that I have I, I think there are some situations where I have found actors sort of struggling to gel with sort of the tone of the show and you know i mean when you're talking about a show that has like a very tight ensemble that has a very that you know has a very specific way of working together you know you can see practically how that's difficult for even an actress as talented as say holly hunter to come in and really make an impact and you know the more i look back on season two the more i've come to see the sort of conception and execution of the Rhea character is you know in some senses a missed opportunity um for the show but you know most of the new the new actors i would say here like sanaa lathan and jihei you know don't really get much of a chance to make an impression outside of you know uh, establishing themselves as people who exist in this universe as you know competent professionals who would be pursued by these characters on the other hand you know uh, as sort of you know, uh, basic level as the shtick that Dasha gets into uh, with Greg might be, she makes a little bit of an impression, I would say, as an interesting personality who might exist in this specific sort of comic universe. Yeah, and it's funny because metatextually for a lot of people who watch Succession... Well, no, they do and they don't. They they do and they don't. (laughs) Like, I I did this... I did the thing where I tried for about, like, five minutes on the phone to explain this to my mom. And I was like, "It's impossible." To I did it. To I gotta admit, I did it. And my course, mom as and, well. And of, course, and of course, somewhere in there, my mom is like, "But so who cares?" I'm like, "I agree. No one cares." But, <laughs> right. but, 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 
people do care very much and it does people care a lot <laughs> people people care a lot but i would argue too not to spend too much time on this side character this 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 side actor who is also kind of interesting at the moment because she has a film that's coming out which also feeds into the kind of online discourse around her because like here she is as an actor and a podcast host and she's also a, a filmmaker and that movie's kind of interesting but it's like the people who watch succession it's now so many different demographics are yoked mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. the kind of like mass culture appeal right. the show has so there is absolutely a wittiness and a rightness to casting this niche podcast host as a girl talking about twitter on the show you know what there's a big portion a big number of viewers who are going to pick that right up and get mm -hmm. that and actually it's going to work for them but it's just as fair enough to the other hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people watching the show who have no idea and will never have any idea who this person is or why anyone should care it's not like it hampers the show and this is an interesting luxury that Succession can have. We haven't seen them yet in the season, but like they can hire Adrian Brody and Stephen Root because this is HBO's flagship show, you know. And then they can kind of cast around at a different uh, side of the pop yeah. culture spectrum or continuum. This is what I mean. It's under a big tent now. Holly Hunter and Danny. Yeah. Holly Hunter and Danny Houston are part of that too. It's changed a lot. I mean, even Zoomers, you know, um, which you know maybe is part of the demographic you're even all referring to already. But I will say, uh, you know, Ingenue or Auteur, however you want to refer to her, uh, Dasha did in the few minutes she was on screen. Not to you know spend so much time on her, I was actually impressed. Yeah, frankly. sure. Um, she was able to show a couple different sides of Comfrey already, uh, Kingo, um, you know, but already, like in just moments, and it felt very natural from her to bounce from the flirty, you know, whatever scene with Greg and go straight into business mode. We love your, we love your story. We love your narrative arc. You know, she was, she was great. Um, and I also, I, I, I like that the show is having a little fun, Adam, like you mentioned, it is kind of like poking here and there and 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 i enjoy that as a you know i, I like that when shows have some fun <laughs> yeah well and you know i mean again we're gonna what was what was the line in the episode hipster dipshit demographic so as long as she's <laughs> as long as she's there you know the hipster dipshit demographic will be will be there you know following her <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, just to run down some more of the new characters that, you know, are briefly alluded to that we can look forward to seeing this season. Um, Josh Aronson is briefly mentioned um, by Jess in this episode. Uh, Jess, is, uh, Jess is running down, I think, people who they have scheduled calls with who I think are, you know, prospects for Team Kendall. She also mentions Ewan, Laird, Lady Caroline, Greg's mom and Marsha. Um, on the phone, we also hear uh, Linda Emond as Michelle Ann, uh, the pantsuit barnacle, as they call her, who is a contact in the White House, I guess for an analog. Um, you know, the official HBO Succession podcast had as a guest to talk about this scene specifically, Jennifer Palmieri. Um, so I guess we might think of that maybe as an equivalent of who they're on the phone with. Um, somebody like that. That, conversa that conversation, I think, was like one of the high points of the episode. It, it really, really gelled and felt uh, naturalistic. And Jerry's clearly, you know, a very talented litigator, but she couldn't seem to crack this nut. Um, and it was rare. It's, you know, it's rare that we see Jerry that desperate uh, when Michelle Ann says it's out of our hands. And she says, like, not if you grab it. Um, 
anyway, yeah, I'm very much Not looking forward fire. to Linda, <laughs> Linda Edmonds' character making trouble. Yeah, uh, yeah, and so and uh, one of the other characters who is alluded to but is yet unseen is uh, Leo Upton. I don't know if this is like spelled Leo or it's Leo, um, but th- but they speak about him like he's a David Boys type figure, a very aggressive, mm-hmm. pugnacious, feared attorney, um, and uh, this is who Logan intends to hire. Um, and they talk about this as it's a you know it's it's cutting the opposite direction of Elisa Arthur, right? It's somebody who's not going to win them public sympathy, but might intimidate some people into backing off. Off. Um, we did mention. We gotta hope that's Stephen Root, right? I don't think it's Stephen Root. Uh, Stephen Root is we saw in a teaser, but we don't know anything about who he's playing. Stephen Root tends to get cast as I, you know, like Southern politician types, that kind of thing. Um, I think that he may be more in that world. Somebody else who we know is going to be on the show and who I would I would suspect they have pegged for this role is the actor Yul Vazquez. Um, there has been nothing I, that I could find in print about him joining this show, but Matthew McFadden did mention him as having joined the cast in a red carpet interview, and he seems like the type to play, you know, yeah, really, uh, re- really ugly, mean-spirited uh, sort of lawyer type uh, would, would, would be a good fit for Vasquez. Um, we also know from his appearance on a Talking Sopranos episode this past spring that Peter Riegert plays uh, an upcoming role on the show. I think he mentioned that he was playing an attorney, but... Uh, somebody of a left-wing stripe, I think he said specifically, somebody aligned with Ewan. Um, so that's my hunch is that Yul Vazquez is playing this this Leo character, but we'll see. And then we also have some uh, some returning characters on the show. We mentioned that we uh, get to see Rava, Natalie Gold, again in this episode. Um, and uh, we were so delighted, actually, to see her again after having her character having been absent for all of season two uh, that Gabby went on a little side quest. Uh, do you have? <laughs> do you want to talk about that? <laughs> I did, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Also, just <laughs> want to say very happy to have Natalie Gold back on the show. She is great. Um yeah, I found Rava's apartment. Um, you can trust my research methods. Um, they are sound. <laughs> She's so. our geography gumshoe, okay? That's, <laughs> we've got you. a little gumshoe on our show. I uh, compliment. And Gabby. So, yeah, that apartment was uh, a pretty striking, and, um, you know, we were, we were wondering about it. So the, the exterior and interior shots are indeed the same location, which is... Um, to Park Place down in Tribeca and Tribeca is where you live when you're super rich um, but not a boomer or older you know like Logan lives on the Upper East Side Um, so you know I had a feeling that it was in Tribeca and it is indeed um, down there by City Hall and um, to Park Place is actually the Woolworth building Uh, I'm sure that name sounds familiar to a lot of you especially uh, UK listeners so Woolworth was a pioneer of the Five and, ten, five and Dimes shops in uh, the late 19th century. Eventually, he spawned this whole empire of these cheap merchandise stores. Um, they're largely gone today, but the company did birth Foot Locker, which I thought was interesting. Um, so the Woolworth building was completed in 1913, and it was the tallest building in the world for a couple decades. Um, it was referred to as the Cathedral of Commerce with a lot of interesting commercial tenants, um, including Nikola Tesla and the Kellex Corp, which was heavily involved in the Manhattan Project. So um, a little shady, befitting <laughs> for a Roy. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Woolworth himself um, kind of had a similar background to Logan Roy, grew up working class and, you know, was this self-made, would have you know been worth a billion dollars today. Um, so anyway, this apartment, which had like this dazzling 
spark, uh, spiraling staircase and, and um, was, you know, just obviously going to be something obscenely expensive. It's a five bedroom, six bathroom unit on the 29th floor of this building. Um, you know, the top, I think, 12 floors were converted into real estate um, in 2012. And I asked people on Twitter to give me guesses about <laughs> the price of this that. apartment. It is cur- it's currently um, on the market. And um, the price is $23.3 million. Um, Yeah, so <laughs> um, people had like a whole range of answers. Some people were hilariously low. Um, the closest was... Um, somebody named Jackie Daytona at 23.5. So a little bit over, but, um, anybody who was under just like, wasn't that close. Um, yeah. So they win the, uh, um, the boar on the floor sausage goes to them. That's right. If anyone's, if anyone's in the market for a $100,000 a month (laughs) mortgage, well, this is <laughs> penthouse. Oh. Well, this is this Go is ahead. amazing detective work, but yeah, this is what I would really like the official HBO Succession podcast to be doing. I just want an episode about mm-hmm. Ken's divorce settlement and how it was structured. Um, I just want to know what those uh, what what that looks like for Rava. Yeah, I mean he's he's not giving her enough money for gender appropriate razors, right? I'd like to see the damages she claims. But yeah, it was good. It's it's good to have her back. She has a great subtlety and um, you know, the way she speaks with with Ken in general, kind of just like throwing shade at him and he doesn't realize in part because he's in a manic episode, but also because um, you know, he fundamentally like can't see her for, you know, what she really is and and um, you know, that thread is sort of um carried throughout the episode and the way that he ignores women and whatnot. Um, and, you know, just kind of the clumsy way that he invites Naomi up, um, you know, sort of an awkward scenario. Um, and, and he doesn't really seem to yeah. uh, register that at all. And, and, and Rava's kind of, you know, doing a lot for him here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Spe- one moment I did uh, not get to with Ken, since you're speaking of Rava, is he did have one down to earth, this is the real Kendall kind of insecure moment with he, someone he could only have that with. And that's probably Rava or Logan or possibly Nay. We don't know the degree to their intimacy, but you know, and asking, can I do this? Can I win? Um, so it's interesting mm-hmm. to see how he finally gets vulnerable around Rava. Brief, however, briefly, yeah. however he historically briefly. has, yeah, and, totally. And he's uh, he's going back to the womb, right? I mean, we talked about that image of him sort of in yes. the in the womb like bathtub at the beginning, and there's so much hiding behind skirts in this episode. Um, but yeah, he's he's absolutely sort of returning to that position of sort of looking for her approval. That whole scene is very funny because mm-hmm. it's a scene where Ken is sort of doing like this, you know, it's sort of like the curb your enthusiasm thing of like the anonymous donor or something, or or like he's the <laughs> or he's the uh, he's the bad art friend. He's the lady who's like, why is nobody talking about my kidney donation? Why is nobody talking about my press conference? Um, that's kind of that's kind of the zone that, that Ken is in in that scene. I thought that was, I thought that was really really funny. Um, but then there's uh, yeah, I, I did like there's a there's a weirdly underplayed and this was another instance of just like odd direction. I thought uh, the moment at the end where Robert really freaks out about the wine being opened and says it's because uh, it's like a really old bottle and she's really pissed off at Greg for opening. It's her godfather. It's her godfather's bottle or something. But I mean, I was like, that's it, it was yeah, a very strange scene random. because. 
Uh, it's it's certain, certain she gives that excuse, but the way that she reacts seems to me like the reaction is really about you know Ken breaking his sobriety under her roof um, and uh, her anxiety about that. Um, I felt that was what was ob what was clearly meant to be breaking through in that scene, but I felt it, it definitely wasn't underlined. Yeah, that's how I read that too, for sure. Yeah, that's how I read it as well. Um, so you know, Rava's always been preoccupied with Ken's sobriety. Um, we didn't see her in season two, but throughout season one, for sure. Um, I think that's what was going on there. He is the father of her children, and she's obviously a devoted mother, even, you know, if she's rich and has a lot of help or whatever. <laughs> um, I know we have to uh, let Adam go in a minute, so I wanted to move on to just kind of like odds and ends and go around and see if anybody had you know, just sort of favorite lines, favorite bits they wanted to talk about. I know we wanted to talk a little bit about the changes to the opening titles of the show. Yeah, I mean, there's just some fun gags. You know, fans love this, and we are fans. So, yeah, um, my favorite, and I hadn't seen this one really making the rounds. It was kind of like, uh, well, there were a couple, um, but equality, and, and the, in the, uh, um, you know, Times Square, where we see the shots of ATN and then the scrolling on down below at the bottom of the news screen, you know, we got equality activists caught with child porn bonanza. Um, the one I saw making the rounds uh, was, I smiled at her by the photocopier, now I'm facing chemical castration. Cancel culture, baby. And me too. And uh hollywood boss sneers if the poor are so poor why aren't and then we don't get to see the any anything else but it's a <laughs> <laughs> we can we can come up with everyone should come up with their own um you know end to that sentence i don't know and then yeah there was also new um footage uh in in the show i wasn't able to actually identify where the footage had come from um but it did say it was mirrored after kind of what F Fincher did in the game. Um, and in that footage, the dad isn't around. And so the dad isn't featured. And here we notice that the parents are like very withdrawn and afar and we never see their faces. Um, we got a shot of presumably Roman uh, smoking a cigar. I know you had pointed that out on Twitter, Gabby. Smoking a, smoking a big um, Macanudo cigar. Yeah, and, and I just want to say that I've, I've seen uh, chatter among some of the new fans that, uh, you know, they're confused <laughs> the about the fans. opening credits. Be <laughs> the, they're confused about the opening credits because the ages don't make sense, blah, blah, oh. blah. And, and I just want to remind everyone it's it's thematic imagery. It's, it's not actually yeah, supposed it's not to be literal. them. Um, well, no, what, yeah, it, what, so it is, just... what it is is it's, it's Fincher's the game just right. because. I mean, that's all it is. It's just the, yeah. it's the opening of that. The opening is, of that is it movie. literally the same footage, Adam? Because no, but it's but it's okay, right? But right, it's right. such a but it's such a direct. It matches and, it and, thematically. But but not only that, but uh, I would argue that Nicholas Bertel's terrific music takes mm -hmm. its uh, the descending, spiraling musical mm -hmm. motif is actually very similar to Howard Shore's music uh, for the game. I've had reason over the last couple of years to 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 pay attention to these things. Uh, including <laughs> talking to Howard Shore about about the score for the game and how oh, 
that's right. The, You're, yep. The game has this. No, it's really interesting. If you listen to the score for the game, it's not, mm -hmm. this is not remotely suggesting a lift or plagiarism. I mean, Bertelli, a brilliant composer, right? And it, it's right. its own musical language. But when you combine the, the allusion to the game, to the way that the, the music similarly has this kind of spirally descending, mm -hmm. kind of leaping quality mm -hmm. to it. It's just, it's a fascinating mm -hmm. in influence. But it's an appropriate one, given what the game is about and what Succession is about. It is just a game, right? Game, you know, it's funny. Fincher is one of my faves, and the game is the only film of his I haven't seen. So I don't know if I can call him a fave. Am I allowed if I haven't seen that? But, it's um, uh, it's is it's a better Citizen Kane riff than Mank is, the game. <laughs> well, I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, we also had a Hollywood sign of Waystar Studios amongst uh, Palm Oh, trees. I loved that. Yeah, it, it was so pastiche and just <laughs> awesome. I loved it. Gabby, a favorite moment from the episode? Oh, I mean, I love the the Frank Hugo, Carl banter. Um, <laughs> Yeah, shout out to David Rask for getting in the uh, the top billing. Um, really great to to have him more involved. Super funny. I loved when he said that you know the the ongoing bit about him being hungry. Um, <laughs> I just felt that that was very relatable. Carl's always you know sort of having problems traveling. Yeah. He's hungry. He's having a panic attack. Um, um, just you know very funny moment there. And then you know of course Logan. Uh, you know, trying to deny everybody food. Having a bad time on vacation. That's Carl. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just scrolling through my notes, looking at something, looking for something that we haven't mentioned yet, and I just found this note that says Naomi's nickname is Nay. Terrible. Nay. I also loved um, Logan's line delivery of, you know, Frank, you're not trusted. Your mashed potatoes. Um, yep. That was, yep. That was yep. beautiful. If if we are mentioning Nay, I've got to get in another one, and that's him telling Nay in a flirting manner that he's the best best guy in the entire world, and I believe he actually believes that at that moment. Oh my God, that back and forth. It was that like grandiose. It, it reminded really me of gross. the Rava. It was the back and forth of like Rava when she was like, "Are you the man?" at dinner and um. Right. <laughs> in, in season one, uh, so it de definitely mirrored Kendall has a flirting style. Yeah. But I just mm -hmm. thought it was hilarious because he definitely does think he's the best man in the world right now. And, like his oh, grandiosity. Right, yeah, sure. and, and great, yeah. uh, great silent eye acting from fan favorite Juliana Canfield as Jess Jordan in that scene. Uh, just sort of looking, <laughs> trying, trying. Yeah. She has incredible face control where she's she's really working hard to not be nauseated, but she's very nauseated and looking for a way to interrupt. Right. Um, uh, Adam, uh, yeah. Any closing thoughts on the episode? And I know, yeah, we've alluded to it a bit, but you have a you have a book coming out soon. I know. Yeah, I mean, how how to reconcile those two things? We can't. So I'll just say that. Uh, the episode was the episode was my wife and I were watching. We were very happy to have our stories back, you know. Same. And I think that we kind of hit this off the top that it seems to be a bit of a media event or pop cultural event that Succession is back, and we have enough trust in this creative team, real trust, right? You know yes. that that uh, you know the, the 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 recap style of engaging with pop culture, which 
I think you guys do with a certain a certain smartness and integrity and other people do with a certain smartness and integrity and others don't you know it, it's not always um, you know not not always great to taking art on its own terms so we may find a lot of the things from this episode that we thought were important will be will be will be dropped and there'll be other things that'll sort of tease out and seem important but it did seem as a as an episode you know a bit rushed and a bit frenetic and you know and 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 i think my favorite part weirdly is just i'm just happy that it's back even if there were flaws you know i want to yeah want to yeah. a lot to look Same. forward to i, I wanted something to look forward to yeah and in terms of plugging a project i wrote a, a book for abrams on a very obscure really kind of under discussed <laughs> american filmmaker david fincher uh this follows <laughs> after books in which i discovered the cohen brothers and then tried to argue, uh, you know, that people should take Paul Thomas Anderson seriously. These are very heroic books, because no one really talks about these filmmakers at all. Um, no, I, mean, I was shocked learning about PTA. I couldn't believe it. Right, you know, I mean, because no one, no one distributes these movies. No one, <laughs> no one, no one, you know, nominate. No one nominates them for awards. No, but uh, this is a a book on David Fincher and his films. Uh, it's a book that you're. Your co-host Brendan is aware of because he's definitely one of the more uh, insightful and 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 helpful reader type persons that uh, that an author could have. So you know, I have a lot of grat- uh-huh. have a lot lot of gratitude toward towards Brendan for help and and thoughts on this book as it was written. Which also means that if people like this one less than the other ones, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, the, the, the other other people were asleep. Other people were asleep at at the switch, but I'm happy with it. And I'm actually happy it's coming out with some distance uh, from Mank. I, I, I don't love Mank, I don't hate Mank. I was so tired of Mank as a syllable on Twitter, standing in for the work <laughs> of actually doing jokes or saying anything about fucking anything, including about Mank. Typing the word Mank doesn't say much about the movie Mank. So I'm kind of happy that that movie has kind of passed and the book is coming out with a year of hindsight on what that movie was or isn't i'm very grateful for that rather than if this was all coming out at the same time so yeah so i am familiar with the book definitely and i uh, definitely uh there you know adam in general we didn't talk about adam's i think overall body of work on the show but adam has been one of my favorite critics just to read on like a regular basis for a long time and there is a chapter in this book about fight club that is one of my personal favorite things he's written which is a high endorsement and i hope people uh, check it out what it is is it's a it's a 20-step guide to hanging the fight club poster on your dorm room wall Oh, right. Yes. Very carefully. Here's Dude's where you, rock. Here's rock. where you put it to, you know, to alienate the wrong kind of the, the you know, to alienate the wrong kind of squid. I'm kidding. Uh, God, I, I never would have thought in 1999 I'd be writing something about Fight Club being interesting, but here we are. So uh, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. I gotta also vouch. I, I did. I uh, bought the Paul Thomas Anderson book, and from what I've read, it's fantastic. The pictures are amazing. Um, and it's very well written, and I really enjoyed it. Particularly seeing Magnolia taken seriously. Um, I, is all it okay of them, if we read the Fincher book first and then go back to the PTA book? No, this is very kind. I like when you said the pictures are beautiful because they are. I'm like, I want someone to read my book for the articles, you know? Like, <laughs> I know, I know. I felt so sad. Because you know, I was self conscious as soon as I said that. I've got to be honest. No, no, no. no but great I, pictures. They are really but nice I pictures. Say too. <laughs> 
I should say too, because you know this is my version of the succession acceptance speech now. Is you know mm-hmm. the the you know mm-hmm. the, the 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 British film magazine, Little White Lies, does all the imagery and the layout for this book, and they do a, they 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 do a terrific job because trying to make something that's uh, analytical but also an object is a kind of interesting thing to do because there are a lot of people who will buy these for the, the pictures yeah. and the art and and the illustration. So it's an interesting uh, an interesting object to try and work on. But uh, no, I, I appreciate appreciate you guys having me on. And history is going to vindicate you as having jumped on the succession pod train <laughs> before literally everybody else did. There, if there's any, if, if the universe unfolds the way it should, you know, there's mm-hmm. going to be big big smiles at the pearly gates for you guys. You know. Yes, in podcasting, in <laughs> podcasting yeah, heaven. To look forward to. Yeah. When, when, when we're all dead. But yeah. Thank, <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you guys for having me on. I had a great time. All right. Uh, Thank you so much. I wanted to give the floor to Kate for just a minute at the end here. Yeah, um, on a a serious note, um, I'd definitely be remiss if I didn't point out that something was missing uh, this episode, um, especially, you know, like geeking out for it and then, you know, talking about it afterwards. And... um, you know, one of our close friends, I'm sure a lot of you already know, um, because she was, you know, kind of part of our online group, and uh, Kendra, and she's someone that I actually met through the Roycast account and became close friends with. Um, she wasn't there because, unfortunately, she passed last year, and, um, you know, I dearly missed her takes, her post-show you know, show discussion. Um, she was incredibly biting and sharp and funny and why we all loved her. She called it like it is. And I know we would have been laughing. Um, a strong voice and never missed a beat and had only the best of vibes. So she loves Succession so much and I know she couldn't wait for season three and we're just so sad that she's not here to watch it with us. Um, so because of that, we'd like to dedicate this season to our lovely, kind and gracious friend Kendra and we love you thanks Kate Um, thanks everybody for listening thank you to Adam Naiman thanks to our producer Dan Black Kate and Gabby as always Um, next week we'll be back to discuss a new episode of Succession until then everybody take care of yourselves bye bye I wanna talk, I wanna call you and talk I wanna walk to your front door and knock After I stop, my vehicle drive to your city Cause we live in our park Land at your driveway and put it in park Then do the third line of this verse Then back to my house and we pack up our bikes And we rock through the park, chase the sun God, that's all I want Other than air, oxygen and financial freedom Yeah, I want your company I need your company I want you to want for me I can't maneuver Without you next to me It's so complex to me What do you need? Do you need bread? Do you need this? Do you need do you need to be alone? I can wrap this up and get the fuck away instead. What is your wish? It can be granted. You're number one, one on my list. See, I'm Santa. Where's Rudolph? You're parasitic. I do not have some control. I am starting to wonder. Is this my free will or yours?